Hi, this is Brad Constantine, and you've reached the Book of Mormon Lecture Series. I've been teaching seminary and institute for the last 11 years, and uh, this is an attempt to do a deep dive into the Book of Mormon itself. I'm hoping that you'll find this uplifting and edifying. This is not an official recording of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but every attempt has been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. So if you're ready for a deep dive into the Book of Mormon, here we go. Hi, and welcome back to the Book of Mormon podcast. This is going to be Mosiah chapter 14. And uh, this is quoting from Isaiah. So Abinadi is going to be quoting from Isaiah. This is the same as um, Isaiah chapter 53. So if you want to put a finger in both, you can do that. Uh, he's going to be quoting from Isaiah. As it says in the heading to the chapter that Isaiah speaks messianically. So this is Isaiah quoting, or Abinadi quoting Isaiah, which is talking about the Savior. Yea, even doth not Isaiah say, who hath believed our report? In other words, who has accepted the testimony of the prophets relative to the, to the Messiah? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? To whom has God revealed his priesthood, his gospel, those things wherein is found the power of God unto salvation? For he, Christ, shall grow up before him, meaning Elohim, our Heavenly Father, as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground apostate Israel. In other words, the dry ground is apostate Israel. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Now, this is an unusual passage. What does it mean? Biblical scholars conjecture that this passage refers not to the Savior's physical appearance, but to the fact that Jesus would not come in the glorious manner that Jews were expecting. Joseph Fielding Smith interpreted these words to mean that Jesus would look like an ordinary man, and thus the Jews would not recognize him as the Son of God. There is no mystique, no dynamic appearance, no halo around the head. Thunders do not roll and lightnings do not flash at his appearance. He is the son of the highest, but he walks and appears as the offspring of the lowest. He is a man among men, appearing, speaking, dressing, seeming in all outward respects as they are. That was from Bruce R. McConkie. Joseph Fielding Smith said there was nothing about Christ to cause people to single him out. In appearance, he was like men. And so it is expressed here by the prophet that he had no form of com or comeliness. That is, he was not so distinctive, so different from others that people would recognize him as the son of God. He appeared as a mortal man. And so as the Israelites were hoping that Jesus would come as the Messiah King, instead he comes as the servant Messiah, which they didn't expect. Verse 3, he is despised and rejected of men. Jesus was re rejected by his own people, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and he hid, as it were, his, we hid, as it were, our faces from him. In other words, they shunned him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. And then uh, later on, uh, Abinadi is going to comment on this. He says in chapter 15, verse 5, thus the flesh becoming subject to the spirit. When mortals become totally subject to God, they will have passed the test and are ready to go on. That was Hugh Nibley. Uh, or the Son of, to the Father, being one God, suffereth temptation and yieldeth not to the temptation, but suffereth himself to be mocked and scourged and cast out and, discover, and disowned by his people. Verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and our sicknesses and carried our sorrows or our pains. The word sorrows is more literally pains and the word grief is more literally sickness. That was from Kevin Barney. Elder Maxwell said, Jesus' daily mortal experiences and his ministry, to be sure, acquainted him by observation with a sample of human sicknesses, grief, pains, sorrows, and infirmities, which are common to man. But the agonies of the atonement were infinite and firsthand. Since not all human sorrow and pain is connected to sin, 
The full intensiveness of the atonement involved bearing our pains, infirmities, and sicknesses, as well as our sins. Whatever our sufferings, we can safely cast our care upon him, for he careth for us. Yet we did esteem him stricken and smitten of God. The people would look upon Jesus as one who, who has leprosy and afflicted. Jesus suffered for our sins. It has been common in many ages for people to assume that someone who suffers is being punished by God. Those who see the servant consider that he is being punished for sin. Ironically, they are correct, but it is not his own sin that causes him to suffer. Rather, it is ours. Now, among the Jews also, they knew that any person that was crucified uh, was considered to be cursed by God. So when Jesus is, uh, is killed by crucifixion, that was another reason why they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, because that would have been showing that he was cursed by God. Verse 5, but he was wounded, a better translation would be pierced fatally. For our transgressions, he was bruised, a better translation would be crushed. Uh, we know that Gethsemane means oil press, and so he was pressed in the Garden of Eden until he bled at every pore. For our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with, our, with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquities of us all. The atonement Jesus suffered for us all. <clears throat> Abinadi further later on says, Having ascended into heaven, Jesus goes before us to the Father pleading to let us in. Having the bowels, bowels symbolizes the seed of pity or kindness. The seed of pity or kindness, hence tenderness, compassion. That was from Webster's Dictionary of 1828. Of mercy being filled with compassion towards the children of men, standing betwixt them and justice, having broken the bands of death, taken upon himself their iniquity, and their transgressions, being uh, having redeemed them and satisfied the demands of justice. Elder Packer uh, tells the story of the mediator, which we've seen uh, many times. There's a video about that. Um, I won't go into that one right now. Uh, verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah speaks as though these events had already happened. These are in what's called prophetic perfect tense. And then Abinadi's comments later, he says, And after all this, after working many mighty miracles among the children of men, he shall be led, yea, even as Isaiah said, as a sheep before the shearer is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. We know that when Jesus was taken captive um, at the Garden of Gethsemane, following his atonement in the garden, uh, that the soldiers also would have had a rope around his neck uh, to lead him away as they would a lamb. David O. McKay said that this man of Galilee knew little but misunderstanding and ingratitude and criticism and abuse, but he never complained, and at the end of the day he was as sweet as at dawn. Long before he came, somebody had said that when the supreme man arrived, he would submit to tribulation without complaining. As men looked upon this man of Galilee, they were reminded of that great line of the prophet, as a lamb before the shearer is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Brethren and sisters, what is the attitude, the spirit of the vilifier, as compared with the spirit of the Christ, the spirit of the leaders of the church, the spirit of every true Latter-day Saint? It is better to suffer wrong than to do wrong. And if we as Latter-day Saints will but hold to the truth as it has been revealed, all will eventually be well. Verse 8, he was taken from prison and from judgment. A clearer translation would be without protection, without justice. He was taken away. In other words, he was taken forcibly and denied a fair trial. 
And who shall declare his generation, his roots, his origin? Can we testify of his divine sonship? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people was he stricken. Abinadi later says, And now I say unto you, Who shall declare his generation? Behold, I say unto you, that when his soul has been made an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. And now what say ye, and who shall be his seed? At his death, Jesus went into the spirit world, where he ministered unto the righteous who were waiting for his resurrection. These are his seed. For there are those, for these are those who, for, I'm sorry, for these are they whose sins he has borne. These are they for whom he has died to redeem them from their transgressions. And now are they not his seed? Yea, and are they not the prophets? Every one that has opened his mouth to prophesy that has not fallen into, into transgression. We do not espouse a doctrine of infallibility of prophets. It is a common ploy in anti-Mormon literature to argue that the church is false because of a supposed error or the disaffection of one holding the prophetic office. All who come into mortality, the Savior included, are subject to the temptations of the father of lies, are open to the enticements of the flesh, even those specially selected and designed as the Lord's mouthpieces. With all their inspiration and, and greatness, prophets are yet mortal men with imperfections common to mankind in general. They have their opinions and prejudices and are left to work out their own problems without inspiration in many instances. And that was Elder Bruce McConkie. The commandment is given to high and low, great and small, to take heed to themselves, lest they fall and succumb to temptation. Verse 9, And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. So, in other words, with the wicked, the two thieves that were crucified with him, and the rich in his death meant that he was, um, he was laid in a borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, who was a wealthy person. Because he had done no evil, uh, he was perfect. Neither was any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased, this word pleased obviously is not the right word, certainly it did not please the father to bruise his son as we currently understand and use that word. Modern translations of Isaiah render these opening lines, it was the will of the Lord rather than it pleased the Lord. That gives a clearer meaning of what was meant by the word please when Joseph Smith translated this passage early in the 19th century. Furthermore, acknowledging Christ's submission to the will of the Father in Mosiah 14 is consistent with and sets the stage for the very teaching Abinadi was about to give to King Noah and his people in Mosiah 15. Indeed, Abinadi would give a succinct definition of those who are Christ's seed. They are those whose sins he has borne and for whom he has died. His soul truly was an offering for sin, bringing the joy of a glorious heavenly reunion with his seed, a reunion nowhere more movingly described than in President Joseph F. Smith's vision of the, of the righteous dead. That was section 138. All of this is indeed a pleasure to the Lord. Elder Holland said, or that, I'm sorry, that was Elder Holland. This is a verse which requires careful consideration, con still considering verse 10. God, our eternal Father, loved his only begotten, and like any parent, surely anguished with the pain of his child. And yet, as infinitely painful as it must have been for Elohim, the hours of agony were necessary. They were a part of that plan of the Father of which Jehovah had been the chief advocate and proponent in premortality. Indeed, it was needed that the lamb slain from the foundation of the world be slain in order that life and immortality might be brought to light. And thus it pleased the Lord, the Father, to bruise him in the sense that Jesus carried out to the fullest the will of the Father, in spite of the pain associated with the implementation of the terms and conditions of that will. And that's from uh, Robert Millen. Continuing the verse here, Let it, Yet it pleased the Lord, in other words, God the Father, to bruise him, and he hath put to grief 
and be and hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin he shall see his seed and again these are the righteous that are his seed he shall prolong his days in other words his resurrection the glory of the righteous will be forever and the pleasure of the lord shall prosper in his hand elder mcconkey said if this prophecy was meant to be fulfilled during his mortal sojourn on earth we would list it as having failed. He did not prolong his days. A voluntary death overtook him in the prime of life, nor did the pleasure of the Lord find full fulfillment or full fruition while he dwelt in a state where death lies in wait for the weary pilgrim. It is only in the resurrection that the pleasure of the Lord is perfected, for it is only when spirit and element are inseparably connected that either God or man can receive a fullness of joy. Thus, having made his soul an offering for sin, Having seen his seed, all the righteous dead from the days of Adam to that moment, as they assembled to greet and worship him in the paradise of their Lord, and having thereafter risen in glorious immortality to live and reign forever, our, our Messiah truly fulfilled the prophetic utterance, for then his, his days were prolonged forever, and the pleasure in his hand was infinite. And then uh, continuing on uh, with verse 11. He, Elohim, shall see the travail or the work of, his, of Jesus' soul and shall be satisfied. In other words, when Jesus says, it is finished, it will have been completed. Elohim will be satisfied with Christ's sacrifice. Christ satisfied the demands of the atonement. Continuing verse 11, by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. In other words, Jesus inherits all that the Father has. If men accept the atonement of Jesus Christ and live worthy lives, they may become joint heirs with Christ. A joint heir is one who inherits equally with all other heirs, including the chief heir who is the Son. So as Jesus inherits all that his Father has, we too as joint heirs will inherit all that he has as well. I bear testimony of the truth of this and this wonderful uh, talk by Abinadi uh, and say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. See you next time.